Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. If you want to sign up to get members-only episodes, early access to general release episodes, ad-free content, and written transcripts for the price of a cup of coffee a month, then you can by subscribing to The Boyarduma via Patreon, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. Check the episode notes for details. Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of Russia. As usual, I'm Damon, and this is episode 67, Venus Ascendant. Thanks for listening in. So, where were we? Well, a couple of episodes ago, we got to Wednesday the 6th of December, 1741. Which, by the way, to everyone in Russia, due to the anomaly in calendars, was Saturday the 25th of November and we'd witnessed Peter the Great's daughter, the 31-year-old Elizabeth Petrovna, a.k.a. the Russian Venus, seizing power and then being proclaimed as Empress of all the Russias. And then in the last episode, we took a detour and did a brief retrospective of Anna Ivanovna's ten-and-a-bit-year reign, and then I subjected you to a lengthy, largely informative, but possibly painstaking look of the causes of the War of the Austrian Succession, followed by Prussia's invasion and occupation of Silesia, France and its allies march upon Prague, and then right at the end we saw how Frederick the Great of Prussia had somehow managed to get himself into a bit of a pickle by becoming an ally of both France and Austria at the same time. Now I'm conscious of the fact that over the past few episodes I've left a number of loose ends. I don't know about you, but I hate loose ends, with a passion. And so today, we're going to try and tidy up what we can, and then we'll spend the rest of the episode looking at Elizabeth's first couple of months in charge. Does that sound reasonable? I think it does. But while you all ponder that for a while, and decide amongst yourselves, 
I'm going to crack on with some history of Russia. So, loose end number one. What would Elizabeth do with Anna Leopoldovna, Anna's husband Anton of Brunswick, and their son Ivan, who had been emperor of Russia for just over a year, although he hadn't known that much about it because he'd only been two months old when his so-called reign had started. The Brunswicks, their two children, yep, there was also a daughter named Yekaterina, and Anna's companion, stroke lover, stroke lady-in-waiting, Julia von Mengden, had all been placed under arrest immediately following Elizabeth's coup, and a couple of days later they were transferred to the fortress of Dunamunda, which was up on the Baltic coast near Riga. Now, most of the sources indicate that Elizabeth intended to send the entire group to live in exile in Anton's ancestral lands in Brunswick. However, something, or someone, changed her mind. Perhaps it was the proximity of the Swedish army, and more of the Swedes later, and the thought that Ivan VI could fall into foreign hands, and then could be used as a political pawn by either the Swedes or their French allies. Whatever the reason, at some point during 1742, they were all sent into internal exile close to the town of Rannenberg near Voronezh in southern Russia. Oh, and by the way, if you're wondering what had happened to Anna's other companion stroke lover, the Saxon ambassador, Count Moritz Linar, well, he'd had the good sense to slip back to Saxony just before the coup had taken place. Annoyingly, we'll have to leave this particular loose thread hanging for the time being. However, we will be paying another visit to Anna, Anton, their children and Julia in the next episode. All I can say at this stage is, if you're thinking that a happy ending is on the cards, it's probably best to start lowering your expectations now. OK, next we'll check in on the former members of Anna Ivanovna's cabinet and see how they're all getting on. The first two are relatively simple to deal with. Alexei Shokaski, he'd been one of the key players behind Anna's rise to the top position. After her accession, he'd been involved in a spot of foreign diplomacy and had signed a few treaties on behalf of Russia. But he was never a major force, and when Elizabeth took over, he quietly pledged his loyalty and was allowed to live out the rest of his life in peace and relative obscurity. In 1742, he died age 63. Andrei Ushakov, who had been Anna's head of secret police, was kept on by Elizabeth, although, interestingly, he had not outwardly supported her coup, and he was made a count. But at some point in either 1744 or 1745, he either retired or was pensioned off, and in 1747, at the age of 75, he also died. So that just leaves us with the Baltic-German trio of Biron, Munich and Ostermann, who, as we know, had all been sentenced to death, Biron by Anna Leopoldovna and the other two by Elizabeth. And they'd then been all pardoned and exiled to Siberia. Biron was the first to be dispatched eastwards in late 1740, and his place of exile was the village of Pelim in western Siberia. Now there were, and still are, two 
Pelims in western Siberia, one near Perm and the other near Sverdlovsk. But sadly, I couldn't find out which one Byron was sent to. Not that it matters too much though, because in 1742, Elizabeth decided that he'd spent enough time out in the cold and allowed him to move back to his residence in Yaroslavl, about 170 miles northeast of Moscow. Why she did this is unknown. It could have been down to the fact that whilst Anna Ivanovna had always been wary of Elizabeth and had distrusted her, Biron had often shown kindness and he had raised Elizabeth's allowance during his three-week regency. Plus, of course, when she came to power, she had arrested and exiled Munich, who had hated Biron, and Elizabeth knew that the former had been instrumental in bringing down the latter. A classic case, perhaps, of my enemy's enemy is my friend. Elizabeth was wary, though. Unlike her father, she was no fan of foreign advisers, and she also knew that Biron was generally and genuinely disliked. And so throughout her entire reign, she kept him safe and secure in Yaroslavl, away from politics and influence. Biron, though, would go on to outlive Elizabeth and will meet him again along with his long-suffering wife at some point in the future. Finally, we need to clear up one last thing. Biron's stash of diamonds. Remember that these had been taken from him by Anna Leopoldovna's regency regime. However, when Anna herself was arrested a year later, there was no sign of them, even though Elizabeth had instructed the guards to search the entire Winter Palace. Suspicion then fell on Munich, but once again when his residence was searched after his arrest, there was no sign of the gems. So what had happened to them? Well, the strong rumour was that Anna Leopoldovna's lover, Moritz Linar, had snaffled them away when he decided to recall himself back to Saxony. But whether he did take them or not has never really been established. Talking of Burchard Christoph von Munich, as we know, he had tried to escape across the border into Polish territory, but had been caught, arrested, and sent into Siberian exile, again strangely, to one of the Pelims. Unlike Biron, though, he was never released from his confinement. But, like his long-time enemy, he would outlive Elizabeth, and so, again, we'll get to meet him later in our story. The last of the Baltic-German trio, André Ostermann, was the most unfortunate of the three, and that was all down to the history between him and the new empress. To put it bluntly, Elizabeth hated him. In her view, her one-time friend and supporter had been far too slippery and duplicitous for his own good. He owed his position to her father, Peter the Great, who had first elevated him, and yet, when push came to shove, he'd been guilty of supporting the claims of others, the two Annas in particular, instead of hers. After his arrest, Osterman had pleaded for his life and begged for forgiveness, but Elizabeth was having none of it, and instead of a nice comfortable exile in either one of the Pelims, he was carted off, along with his family, to the much less hospitable Berezovo, up in the Arctic wastes, where he died in 1747. But there would be a happy ending of sorts. His eldest son, Count Feodor Osterman, would go on to become a senator and governor of Moscow, while another son, Ivan, would spend time as the Russian ambassador in Stockholm, 
and also Chancellor of the Russian Empire. Okay, there are just three more ghosts from the past to deal with, and two of those are both from the same extended family. Vasily Vladimirovich Dolgoruki, aka the Marshal, was the last surviving member of the Supreme Privy Council, which, if you remember, had been set up during the reign of Catherine I back in 1725. Towards the end of Anna Ivanovna's reign, when two other members of the Dolgoruki family had been executed for allegedly forging Peter II's will, he'd been exiled, unfairly in most people's eyes, to the Solovetsky Monastery in the Arctic North. And I say unfairly because A, he definitely had nothing to do with the forging of the will, B, he was an honourable man who'd often had to distance himself from his family's scheming, and C, in 1739, he was 72 years old. In the spring of 1742, following Elizabeth's coronation, the marshal was brought back from his exile and fully reintegrated back into Russian court circles, and he served as the president of the College of War for four years before he died in 1746. Someone else who was allowed to return from exile in 1742 was Yekaterina Dolgorukova. Back in 1729, she'd been betrothed to the then Tsar Peter II. But the wedding had never taken place because in 1730, Peter had died from smallpox. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. That didn't stop her father, brother and the rest of the Dolgorukis, apart from the marshal of course, from trying to set her up as the new ruler. But their attempt was not supported by the Supreme Privy Council. And when Anna Ivanovna became empress, Ekaterina was packed off to Berezovo with the rest of her family. When Anna finally decided that she'd had enough of the Dolgoruki family, Ekaterina was moved to a convent in Tomsk. But two years later... Elizabeth came to the rescue, and in 1745, Ekaterina was appointed as lady-in-waiting and was allowed to marry. However, in 1747, she caught a fever and died, aged just 35. OK, just one more loose end to tie up, and for that, we have to travel west, to Kiel, in the Duchy of Holstein-Gottorp, and there we will find the 13-year-old Karl Peter Ulrich, who if things had turned out differently, could by now have been the Tsar of all the Russias. He was Peter the Great's grandson, Elizabeth's nephew, 
He was the son of her older sister, Anna Petrovna, who had died back in 1728, and he was also a great-nephew of Charles XII of Sweden. His father, Charles Frederick, the Duke of holstein gottorp had died back in 1739, and he was currently being brought up by his uncle, Prince Adolphus Frederick, in Kiel. But things were about to change for young Karl Peter Ulrich, because his aunt had secretly requested that he should be returned to Russia, and Adolphus Frederick had agreed. So why did Elizabeth want him in Russia, and why all the secrecy? Well, we can't be 100% sure. As with Ivan VI, perhaps, Elizabeth was making sure that Karl Peter wouldn't fall into the wrong hands. Or maybe it was because he was her beloved sister's only child. Or was there a different reason? Elizabeth was unmarried, had no children, and had never been pregnant. Was this simply a case of the Empress deciding who her successor was going to be? Whatever the reason, the clandestine nature of both the agreement and Karl Peter's subsequent journey to St. Petersburg were surely just sensible precautions and practicalities. Karl Peter arrived in St. Petersburg at the beginning of February 1742, and, in an emotional reception at the Winter Palace, his aunt, who was meeting him for the very first time, swept him into her arms, promised to look after her sister's only child as if he was her own, and declared that henceforth he would be known as Pyotr or Peter Fyodorovich and I've got no idea where the Fyodorovich part came from. What became clear over the next few weeks and months is that Elizabeth would have her work cut out if, as most believe, she planned to make Peter her heir. First of all, there was his appearance. At 13, almost 14, he still looked like a boy. He was short and puny, his mouth was too wide, and his chin receded. And then there was his general manner. He seemed afraid of everything and everyone, and that's because, in the main, he was. His mother had died soon after his birth. His father had paid little or no attention to him. He had received little or no formal education, and during his time in Kiel, he had been sadistically bullied. Otto Brumer was the Grand Marshal of the Ducal Court of holstein gottorp and Peter's father had entrusted him with his son's upbringing and education. But what Brumer did instead was subject his charge to a daily round of beatings, mockery and public humiliation. Peter had no one to protect him and no one to confide in, and what was worse, Brumer had accompanied Peter to Russia. Now Elizabeth either didn't get to know about Brumer, or, if she was aware, took no action but she was genuinely alarmed about her nephew's lack of basic learning, and so she appointed Professor Stelin from the St. Petersburg Academy of Sciences to be responsible for all aspects of his education. And that, for the time being, was as much as his aunt either could or was prepared to do. Elizabeth had seized power at a particularly volatile time, and whilst it could be said that she had wisely spent the first couple of months addressing internal Russian matters and dealing with the necessary ceremonial aspects of being a Russian empress, there was a pretty big elephant in the room. The French and their Saxon and Bavarian allies were attacking Austria from the west, whilst the Prussians had taken a chunk of Austrian territory in the north. 
The French had also invested a lot of political capital in trying to persuade Elizabeth to join France and Prussia and turn against Austria. Plus, even though the Russians had defeated the Swedes back in 1741 and had since signed a treaty with their Baltic adversary, the Swedish army was still an ominous presence in Western Finland. So what was Elizabeth going to do? Would she support Austria? Or was she going to come down on the side of Prussia and France? Or would she continue to prevaricate? For a while it looked like the latter, because during January and February, all she had been interested in, apart from her nephew, was her coronation. And later, in February 1742, she left St Petersburg and made her way to Moscow, with Peter in tow, for two months of intense planning, religious ceremonies and official receptions. But before her departure, she had held a series of meetings with her pro-Austrian foreign secretary, Alexei bestujev Ryumin, and more of that in just a minute. The coronation was held on the 5th of May at the Dormitian Cathedral in Moscow, and in a change from the standard protocol, Elizabeth crowned herself. Then a proclamation was read, explaining that the preceding reigns had led Russia to ruin, and that Elizabeth would serve her people and rule with the assistance of Russian ministers and advisers. Upon her return to St. Petersburg, Elizabeth called Bestuzhev and asked him for an update. Bestuzhev explained that all was going to plan. In March, he had broken the ceasefire agreement with the Swedes and had sent raiding parties into the Swedish-held part of Finland. Unseasonably cold weather during April and May delayed any further activity, but by June, Russian troops were again advancing westwards. The French ambassador... Jacques Joachim Trotti, a.k.a. the Marquis de la Chetadie, and his sidekick, Count Jean Armand de Lestoc, were alarmed by the news. If Elizabeth was going to side with the French, surely she would not have attacked their ally, Sweden. Both the Marquis and the Count suspected, rightly, that Pestuzhev was the key. If they could somehow remove him, Elizabeth would come to her senses and see the error of her ways. After all, before she'd seized power, they'd all been seeing eye to eye. Anyway, whilst they're hatching their plans, we will finish off today's episode by winging our way westwards to check in on Maria Theresa and the situation in Austria. In late November 1741, Prague fell to a combined French, Bavarian and Saxon force and the Bavarian elector, Charles Albert, was installed as the King of Bohemia. And so at this stage, things were looking pretty grim for Austria. Silesia, the richest Habsburg province, had been taken by Frederick II of Prussia. Bohemia, as we've just heard, had been taken by the French, and Austria's historical allies, the Russians, were otherwise occupied fighting the Swedes, and Elizabeth was just about to seize power. However, all was not lost. The British hooray, had brokered a rather strange and secret alliance between Maria Theresa and Frederick II, which the Prussians hoped would check French ambitions in Central Europe, and which the Austrians would use for some much-needed breathing space. And use it they did because as 1741 came to a close, two Austrian armies were on the march, 
the first towards Linz and the second towards Munich. 1742 started with a series of collective bangs. In January, the Austrians defeated the Bavarians at Scherding and the French at Linz. In February, Charles Albert was crowned as Holy Roman Emperor, Charles VII, becoming the first non-Habsburg to hold the position in 300 years, although later the same day the Austrians captured Munich. Emboldened by these Austrian victories, Maria Theresa decided to publicly break the secret alliance with the Prussians, a move that left Frederick severely embarrassed and looking like a duplicitous fool, particularly in the eyes of the French. The Austrians then advanced towards Prague, which resulted in Charles VII asking Frederick II to come to his aid, which the Prussian king, eager to get on the front foot, was happy to do. By May 1742, Frederick's armies were advancing on a number of fronts, even threatening Vienna at one point, and realising that the tide was now turning against her, Maria Theresa decided that the best bet was to sue for peace with Frederick again and concentrate her efforts on fighting the French. This suited Frederick, who was short of money and resource, and who suspected that the French were about to negotiate their own peace deal with the Austrians anyway. And so in June 1742, the Treaty of Breslau was signed, ending the First Silesian War, which means, of course, that there will be a Second Silesian War. OK, on that note, I think that is enough for today. Join me next time when we will be going through another round of War of the Austrian Succession toing and froing. We'll also be checking in with young Peter Fyodorovich to see how he was getting on with his nemesis Bruma, seeing how the Russian and Swedish armies were doing in Finland, and observing what Shetadi and Lestock were up to in their attempts to lessen Bestuzhev's influence on Elizabeth's foreign policy. In the meantime, don't forget to check out the members-only offering on Patreon or Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And as always, look after yourself, keep your chin up, and stay as safe as you possibly can. are on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at 50 dollars, luxurious italian leather bags and so much more plus quince only works with factories that use safe ethical and responsible manufacturing get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with quince go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365 day returns